Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to force mythology over the sea to sky. The podcast that I dare say may even be invited by Parliament to invade. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my loyal co-host and glorious revolutionary himself, Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. How you doing today, Kyle? I should have have said that in Dutch, never mind. Hang on, carry on. (laughs) Uh, Well, this week, dear Ragers, we are joined once again by a return Rager, proving yet again that it's our most polite, civil and quiet guests that have the most rage. For this week, we welcome back historian author of Lagarde Écossaise, The Life of John Hamilton, and host of its accompanying podcast, Dr. Kirstine McKenzie. Kirstine, welcome back to History Rage. Thank you so much for having me back. You are more than welcome. So we last spoke back all the way back in Series 4, when you came on to rage quite convincingly that it's the War of Three Kingdoms, not the English Civil War, a motto that we've really taken to heart now. But that was just as Lagarde Écossaise was coming out. So how's that gone in the year or so since? It's gone really quite well. I've had a lot of positive feedback on the book and I've got another couple of books in the pipeline. And yeah, it's gone really quite well. Is, so you're going to turn into the like the 17th century's answer to Bernard Cornwell then? Probably, yeah. God, God! <laughs> It's about, yeah. <laughs> it's about time sharps stop getting the glory. So, yeah, so it's going to be about seven books and they're going to cover the whole swathe of 17th century history. So with regards to John Hamilton's book, we concentrate on military history in Britain, Ireland and across Europe and France and Spain and the Thirty Years' War in Germany. So it covers quite a lot. Mm. In fact, I've had to split his biography into two because I have to cover quite a bit. But it focuses on what we call the general crisis in the 17th century. So we look at 
for example, the 1641 Irish Rebellion, which I will mention later today in the Rage. Um, it also focuses on the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, particularly in the Scottish Highlands and royalism. And then it moves on to the Thirty Years' War, or the tail end of the Thirty Years' War. And then it moves to sort of Barcelona and the Catalans and the revolt that was happening there. And then we eventually end up in Louis XIV's France, when uh, John Hamilton is serving under Cardinal Mazarin and Louis XIV as um, the head of a secret elite unit, which is tasked in protecting the king and innocence from certain death. And mm. his opponent in this book is William of Orange, who I will also be talking about mm -hmm. today. Right then. So, given that we've covered a, a tasters to the to the subject that we're coming at today, let's let's get right into the rage question. Slightly different rage question that you've had before, but for your return rage, Kirstine, what is pissing you off today? It's just this idea that the 1688 revolution was bloodless. The amount of times I still read this in books makes me extremely angry. The 1688 revolution was not bloodless. And, and it's because a civil war raged across England, Scotland and Ireland during this period. Particularly in Scotland and Ireland, it was pretty brutal. In England, it wasn't so bad, as I will go on to explain. But people did die. Um, it, it wasn't very pretty at all. So, so basically, just what I would like to rage is that the 1688 revolution was not bloodless. Okay. Right then. So, let's... Let's get a bit of background first of all, then, because the 1688 revolution, at least in England, is popularly known as as the Glorious Revolution. I would possibly say it's neither of those things, but it's not my yeah. rage; it's yours. Why does it Why does it start to get that term and keep it till even now? Well, to understand where to understand the term and where it comes from, we really have to go back to the seventeenth century. So I want to take you back there and I want you to imagine yourself as a London merchant. You're sixty-eight years old, you're a Protestant dissenter, you believe in the supremacy of Parliament, you believe that the Stuarts are bringing Catholicism back, and you're not very happy with it at all. You uh, as being 68 years old, you are in, at an age group where you fought during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, which was horrific. It was utter carnage. You lost friends and family. And what people often forget about the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, and here's maybe quite a shocking um, statistic or, or, or point for your listeners, is that more people died in the Wars of the Three Kingdoms in Britain than died in the First World War. I never thought of that. Yeah. More British people died in the Wars of the Three Kingdoms than British soldiers died in the First World War. It was utter carnage. So when you've got, in 1688, if you're a London merchant living in London, and you've got William of Orange who lands at Torbay in November 1688, and you've got James II who's going to meet him with an army in the West, you are sitting there watching and waiting to see what happens. You are terrified that England is going to be pulled into another civil war. 
But interestingly, the full-scale battle between William of Orange and James II in the West, in England at least, never happens. And what happens is, is that James flees the country in December 1688, and William of Orange comes to London, and I know I'm skipping over a lot here mm-hmm. in terms of events, but William of Orange broadly gets accepted by the English establishment and gets crowned king with his king and his wife Mary gets crowned queen. And the English establishment largely accepts this as being uh, how it should be. Now, if you're an English merchant who's lived through the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, you're breathing a sigh of relief that England has avoided another bloody civil war. So when they call it the Glorious Revolution, it's not because it was bloodless. It was because, compared to the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, a lot less blood was shed in England. Hmm. I have to emphasise in England, okay? And I will and I will go on to explain uh, this in more detail. But what I also want to emphasise about England as well is that blood was shed in England as well, but not to the same extent as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. So the Glorious Revolution was not bloodless, just compared to the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, it was a lot less bloody in terms of casualties and deaths. Can you give us a, an idea of? Yeah, can you give us an idea of, you know, the the sort of deaths that we're looking at, the sort of numbers compared to? Well, in fact, essentially, let's have a look at that 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 statistic that you mentioned of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms first of all, because. As I understand it, the First World War wipes out about 1.5% of the English population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, that, that's quite a lot, but I'd imagine yeah. by 1914 to 1918, you're actually starting from a lot more people than yeah. you would have been starting from in 1642. Yeah. yeah. So how do the populations compare? And we, we're talking actually more more soldiers die yeah, more per head of the population. So it's one in every five, one in every six people die. In in Ireland, there's a huge chunk of the population that 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 um is comparable with the Irish famine, for example. Yeah. So you're dealing here with massive, massive casualties on a on a huge scale, um, and it's quite a brutal conflict. But getting back to the term "glorious revolution" and what it actually means as well, there's another second meaning that has to be looked at, which is that we have to recognise that the glorious revolution as a term is based on perspective. So it's, as a term, it is telling the story of the 1688 revolution from a particular perspective. And that particular perspective is from the point of view of William of Orange, and it is against James II. So the Whig interpretation of the Glorious Revolution is enshrined as part of the unwritten constitution of the United Kingdom. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to quote the historian Evelyn Cruikshanks in her introductory text to the Glorious Revolution, and she sums it up perfectly, and I quote, The Whig interpretation of the Glorious Revolution as enshrined as part of the unwritten constitution by T.B. Macaulay in his History of England from the Ascension of King James II published in the late in the mid 19th century laid down that it was responsible for political liberty constitutional stability 
economic progress and religious freedom. For Macaulay, King James II was the villain and William of Orange the hero. Now, I want to unpack that paragraph for a minute here. So for centuries after the revolution um, in 1688, Wake historians saw these events as part of Britain's journey towards parliamentary democracy, towards our unwritten constitution. And, and they do have a point in that respect. So the 1688 revolution secured a free parliament, the Protestant monarchy, and a Protestant line of succession. It also restrained the monarchy by law, but also Parliament by Bill of Rights. Also, the revolution meant uh, delivery from popery and slavery, as Protestants saw it under King James II. And because King James II left the way that he did, he fled. He didn't put up a fight. He he fled in, in December 1688. It's seen as a relatively peaceful transition of power. So that's also obviously where the term Glorious Revolution comes from. Mm. Now, William of Orange is invited to take the throne by the Immortal Seven in a letter, and he's invited over, and that's how he ends up landing at Torbay on the 5th of November, 1688. Again, it's all very sort of peaceful in that sense, to a point. Okay, this is what the Whigs believe. They focus on this letter from the Immortal Seven and go, oh, look, it was peaceful. We invited him over. Okay, but I will talk about this in a minute because it's not as peaceful as you might think it is. And according to Whig historians, William has no self-interest in the revolution whatsoever. He's doing this to deliver Britain from popish tyranny. And he's, he's the deliverer of the country. There's no self-interest in this revolution whatsoever. There's nothing in it for him. He's doing it for the Protestants of Britain. Hmm. Now, what I know of William of Orange, he doesn't do anything unless there's something in it for him. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, in that sense, uh, it's the Whig perspective is very much pro-William of Orange, where he's the saviour of the country. He's come to liberate Britain from the tyrannical King James II. Um, however, and this is what I want to emphasise, this does not mean that everyone freely recognised this transition of power and freely accepted what was going on, because armed force was a constant factor in the 1688 revolution, as I will explain later. The response to William's accession to the throne was that James II's supporters, the Jacobites, rose up to support James's claim to the throne and because they saw it as rightful and just. And this resulted in a civil war across the three Stuart kingdoms. So the 1688 revolution was certainly not bloodless. So if I'm sitting there as a 68-year-old merchant in London that's a Protestant sympathiser and veteran of the parliamentarian army, I've actually seen this bloodless revolution start another civil war. Yes. Yeah. 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 But because you're in England, it's minimal, as as I will as I will go on to explain. But before I before I go on to that, mm. there is a third meaning of the Glorious Revolution that I, I want people to understand because it, because we're taking a Three Kingdoms look at it. I think it's important to acknowledge the importance of William of Orange to a certain section of Irish society or British society or certain section 
a society in Ireland is probably the best way to put it. Yeah. And we've got to look at, look at it through their eyes to understand why for them William of Orange is a hero, okay? I think it's important for us to understand this. So in the 17th century, Ireland was one country. It was a united country. The, the Northern Ireland didn't exist. It was, mm-hmm. But my, Protestants were a minority within that kingdom, particularly in the north. There had been a plantation in Ireland which started in 1609 and invited English and Scottish, Scottish settlers to come in and settle on land that had been confiscated by the Crown from Irish Catholics. Okay, mm-hmm. so all these English settlers are coming in and Scottish settlers are settling on this land and the Irish are being dispossessed. Now, a lot of resentment from the Irish builds up. And yeah. in 1641, this resentment explodes into violence and fury. And it's called the 1641 Rebellion. And thousands of English and Scottish settlers were killed. Okay, not as many as the English propaganda would have you to believe. The numbers, when the news got to London and it got to the printing presses, the numbers were greatly exaggerated. But thousands of English and Scottish settlers died in this rebellion. And when things after the Wars of Three Kingdoms began to settle back down again, the Protestant population of Ireland couldn't really trust the Catholic population. They were always on edge for another 1641 to happen. Mm-hmm. This is this is very important. So let me fast forward to 1685. So Charles II dies and James II inherits the throne. Now, to stand up for James II, he had this policy that he thought would work, which was to allow Catholics and Protestant dissenters have a right to hold office. James II believed in toleration. So he wanted Protestant dissenters and Catholics to be equal with their Anglican counterparts. It sounds all very nice and lovely, but what actually happened between 1687 and 1688, particularly in Ireland, was that Catholics flooded into the administration in Dublin and they ended up getting all the top posts. And the Protestant dissenters didn't have any posts at all. Mm. And what happened was that, that the Protestant dissenters are seeing all these Catholics get top posts and they're thinking, oh, well, we could be in trouble here because they're thinking about 1641. And what doesn't help is that some within the, the administration in Dublin actually ask King James II to roll back the plantation of Ulster, which has been happening gradually since since 1609, which would result in the dispossession of English and Scottish settlers from the lands that they've been living on. So you can see that there's this build-up of potential problems with this. Mm. So what happens is, is that the Protestants become very, very insecure, and they then start forming volunteer militia forces to defend themselves from Catholics in Ulster because they fear another 1641 is round the corner because the Dublin administration has said we're going to roll back the plantation. So what happens then is that the, the Ulster Protestants then look 
for a savior. They look for somebody who's going to ensure that their settlements and that their that their lives and their liberties and everything will become intact. And unsurprisingly, they look across to London and they see William of Orange and they'll go and they go, well actually with William of Orange landing, he's he's gonna help us. So they actually appeal to William of Orange to help them. And what so what happens when William of Orange defeats James II at the Battle of the Boyne? It's a great victory for these Ulster Protestants because their lands, their lives and their properties in Ulster are secure. And that's why uh, William of Orange is such a major figure for Ulster Protestants today mm. in that sense. But even then, I doubt that the Ulster Protestants would argue that the Glorious Revolution was bloodless because, of course, they celebrate William's victory at the Battle of the Boyne. And, of course, people died at the Battle of the Boyne. So they themselves would know that the, the Glorious Revolution was not bloodless. Yeah, um, we've since kind of just looked past that, even though it's waved and flag-waved and drum-beaten into, into everybody's face. Yeah, good point. Good point. Let's, let's, let's dive into this idea of it not being quite so bloodless then. And if, perhaps if we start with England first, how is the so-called Glorious Revolution not bloodless in England? Well, this is the one where the major misunderstanding actually actually happens. People think about the Glorious Revolution in England, they, they definitely think it's not bloodless, and that certainly wasn't the case. Even from the sort of beginnings of the revolution, I would say that the motivations behind the Immortal Seven and their, their Whig allies were anything but innocent. Um, what we have to understand is that the, the, the Glorious Revolution, its foundations, lie in the exiled big communities that live in the Netherlands under William of Orange. Now, these are not innocent people who've been prosecuted for the religion. Yes, they've been prosecuted by, you know, Charles II for being Protestant dissenters, but there's a good reason why. Because a lot of these Whig radicals in the Netherlands plotted to kill Charles II in 1683 and his brother James, Duke of York, who was later King James II, in something called the Rye House Plot. Mm. So we're not dealing here with innocent people who've been unfairly persecuted because of their religion. We're dealing here with people who are committed to overthrowing the Stuart monarchy and are committed to killing the king. And the interesting thing is William of Orange entertains these people in his court. He allows these people to stay in the Netherlands, which I think says an awful lot about him. And not yeah. only that, he, he, he allows the Duke of Monmouth, who is the sort of illegitimate son of King Charles II, to come and live in The Hague. And the interesting thing is, it puts Charles II in this really impossible position, where his son's asking him for money, you know, this typical illegitimate royal son. You know, I don't have any money. Daddy, give me money, you know. Please, I need money. And, um, to finance my rebellion against your brother. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and Charles II gives him money. And everybody in Britain is like, what? All his advisors are like, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. But Charles II, you know, blood is blood. It's his son. He doesn't say no. He gives him the money. But the Duke of Monmouth is tolerated by William of Orange. And this, these, these group of people 
um, to rhyme Monmouth. And then, of course, that ends up to be Monmouth's Rebellion, and we all know how that ended for Monmouth very, very horribly. And if you don't know, ladies and gentlemen, then go back to Steve Carter's episode on the Monmouth Rebellion because he goes into quite some detail on it. Yeah, so so William of Orange is, is, is tolerating these, these people. Um, but another thing I have to say before I get in, on to the actual landing of William in England is another thing we have to remember is in 1677, William of Orange married Mary, who was the eldest daughter of King James II and by Anne Hyde. So this is very much a family affair. You've got to remember William of Orange is James II's son-in-law. So when William of Orange invades Britain, he's stabbing his own father-in-law in the back. Okay, so it's very much a family affair that's going on here, which I will explain later. So another thing we have to understand about the Gorge Revolution is that it's part of a a much bigger war that's going on in Europe between Louis XIV and William of Orange, which is quite bloody, okay, called the Franco-Dutch War. And But this rivalry carries on for as long as the two of them are alive. And in many ways, the Glorious Revolution is an extension of this, this warfare, which makes it not glorious at all because it's part of a much wider war where people are continually getting killed. And it's all about power. It's all about military supremacy. And William's got this problem. How does he overcome the grand army of Louis XIV? Louis XIV had the biggest army in Europe at the time. How does William of Orange deal with this? How does he push the balance of power in his favour against Louis XIV? And I remember something that one of my lecturers said when, when she lectured on this in first year at university. She said that Louis XIV and William of Orange didn't care about the British and Irish people. They only cared about themselves. We were just pawns in a much, much bigger game for the two men. They didn't care about Protestants or Catholics. They didn't care about the British or Irish people. They cared about them and what Britain and Ireland meant for them. So in 1670, Louis XIV and Charles II agree to a secret treaty known as the Treaty of Dover. And as part of that, the second agrees to convert to Catholicism. And this is why Orange is seen as a paragon of the Protestant cause, because he supports the Duke of Monmouth at The Hague. With the exception of James II to the British Irish thrones in 1685, it looks as if the power balance in Europe is swinging towards Louis XIV again. And this power struggle is essential to understanding the Glorious Revolution to why we have this civil war that erupts across the kingdoms. Mm. But, but what was William supposed to do? Well, what he did was he had weak contacts in his court, which kept contact with the Whigs in Britain, and they reported back to him. They were secret channels. And they reported somewhat biasly that King James II was a tyrant he was placing Catholics in positions of trust in all levels of the state and actively ejecting Protestants. Now, we know, and as I've already discussed, King James II was very much genuine in opening doors for Catholics as well as Protestant dissenters. It's just that the Catholics just brushed in there first. And it was managed pretty poorly. But his James II's heart was in the right place. OK, he genuinely meant well. and. 
these these Whigs wrote to William and said the English Protestant state is under threat. And it's from this very beginning that military intervention is discussed. This is not something that's organised at the last minute. This is something that is discussed relatively early on and everything's crouched in military terms. An invasion of Britain is being planned. William will land with an army. And this is what they're planning. And for Whig historians, this is William landing with an army to liberate Britain from the tyrannical James II. He doesn't see it for what what it is, in my opinion, which is a planned coup d'etat of the British state by a foreign ruler. Now, the main catalyst for William to to organise this invasion, this armed invasion of Britain, was the birth of a male heir to the British throne. So on the 10th of June, 1688, Mary Medina gave birth to a son, James Francis Edward Stuart. There was public rejoicing at the birth up and down the country. Um, And interestingly, even William of Orange sent a letter of congratulations to to, to James II on the birth of his son. However, the Whigs and William knew that William now had a problem because the, the balance of power in Europe was now swinging right towards Louis XIV. How was William going to get it back? He had a real problem because James Francis Edward Stuart was a legitimate heir. He was a legitimate heir to the British and Irish thrones. He was James II's eldest son, by his wife, Mary of Medina. Now, until that point, William's wife, Mary, was the next in line to the throne. She was Protestant. And although her mother was Anne Hyde, before the birth of James Francis Edward Stuart, Mary was the legitimate heir to the throne. So until that point, William thought he'd had everything in the bag. He thought, my wife is going to inherit the throne. We're going to be fine against Louis XIV. Everything's going to be fine. And then Mary of Medina gives birth to James Francis Edward Stuart. But what really is the instigation in all of this is that James Francis Edward Stuart is going to be brought up a Catholic. Mm. And, of course, William's like, oh, this is, this is going to cause trouble in Britain, which it does. People are not happy with this. So William decides to take advantage of this and he decides to take action to build an invasion force to to go into Britain, accept the letter from the Immortal Seven and get the throne back for his wife and for himself. Um, Some historians will argue that there's no evidence that William had any plans whatsoever to take the throne for himself. (laughs) Uh you don't assemble an army and waltz into a foreign country with a plan of regime change if it's not for you do you Uh, well absolutely absolutely so i unsurprisingly i don't buy the argument that he he (laughs) never intended to claim the throne for himself of course he did from my my point of view but i do remember reading about that when i was reading books on it i'm thinking no it doesn't make any sense to me you're absolutely right, Paul. Yeah. You know, this is regime change. That that's what it is. Regime change by armed force. And you know, I don't. I'm not an expert on William of Orange, by the way. But like any other 
17th century man of power, he's not going to assemble this force, invade a foreign country, and then turn to his wife and go, all yours, my dear. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, but interestingly, Macaulay makes a very interesting point. Even though he's a Whig historian, I just thought I'd read this because I read this and I thought it was very, very interesting. And even Macaulay has his doubts about whether William was going to instigate a civil war or not. He, he, he himself, you know, even though he was a Whig historian, he knew the gamble that William was taking. And Macaulay, the Whig historian, writes, but would the English people altogether, unaccustomed to the interference of continental powers in internal prospects, be inclined to look with favour on a deliverer who was surrounded by foreign soldiers? A bloody victory gained in the heart of the island of Britain by mercenaries of the Dutch States General over the Coldstream Guards and the Buffs would almost be as great a calamity as a defeat. So what he's trying to say is, even though he's biased towards William, he knows that potentially Britain's on the edge of a civil war. So how does William handle this and what happens? Yeah, well, on the 5th of November 1688, William of Orange lands at the English coast in Torbay in Devon, and he lands with 15,000 men, not a small small amount by any, by any means. And the majority of these people are professional soldiers. So he's not landing with, you know, a ragtaggle bag of mercenaries who've got, you know, poor weapons or anything. He's landing with the creme de la creme of his professional forces. He's he's serious about this, okay? So it consists of Dutch regulars, English and Scottish soldiers who are in his Dutch regiments in the Netherlands, and also Huguenots, okay? But they're all very professional soldiers. And make no bones about it, this is a planned invasion. This is planned with precision and it's it's really well thought about. So when William lands, Britain stands, watches, and stands still. Most people in Britain don't know how to react to this. Now, we're told by Wake histor- Historiography that everybody loves William, that he, he was popular and, and, you know, he was told by the Immortal Seven that he'd have lots of support if he landed. But the truth was that when William landed, the majority of British people did not know what to do. They saw a clash between two titans. On one hand, you've got James II, who still has a substantial amount of men at his disposal. He has 57,000 men at his disposal, James II, and he still has London. And then you've got William of Orange, on the other hand, who has 15,000 professional soldiers making his way through Devon. And people are just sitting, watching and waiting and going, what's going to happen? Most people are paralysed and they're just waiting to see what happens. So what happens is that James then decides to go and meet William and he leaves London and with 30,000 men he assembles on Salisbury Plain waiting for William to come across from Devon. But this big battle never happens. I think everybody's expecting a big, massive battle on Salisbury Plain. It never happens. The reason why the, this big showdown on Salisbury Plain doesn't happen is because, as Tim Harris puts it, James II threw in the towel. 
he loses his bottle. Okay. Now, some historians have criticised James for this and said he's a coward. He should have gone in for the showdown. But James is of that generation whereby he lived through the civil wars. You've got to remember that he's dealing with the sort of next generation of Whigs who are the descendants, if you like, of the Puritans that had executed his father, King Charles I. And this is very much on his mind as the news of the invasion comes through, or potential, and even before then, because in, in October 1688, a month before the invasion happens, he organises it for his wife and his son to go to France for safety. And he is very, very anxious about it. And I want to quote something. James says, It is my son that they aim at, and it is my son I must endeavour to preserve whatever becomes of me. So the execution of his father is very much on his mind, but also the fact that his brother, King Charles II, and himself had to flee during the Wars of Three Kingdoms to the continent. This is very much at the forefront of his mind. And I think that is what prevents James having this massive clash with William of Orange on Salisbury Plain. Mm. However, this does not mean that between the time William of Orange lands on the 5th of November 1688 and when James flees the country in December 1688, people do not die in England as a result of the conflict. And I'm going to go through three examples of what happened. Only a period of about, you know, eight weeks but people, people in England die. So the first episode, the first fatalities of this event take place in London. So as James is making preparations to leave London, riots start to happen. And these are very anti-Catholic riots. Catholic ambassadors have their houses overturned. The Protestant London mob goes absolutely crazy and James II's soldiers have to restore order. And in doing so, on the 12th of November, they end up shooting six or seven people dead as they're trying to restore order in London. And they're the first casualties of the 1688 revolution as order is starting to be restored. The next event that, that where people lost their life was when James is trying to confine William to Devon and he ends up going to Salisbury with these 30,000 men. But then William of Orange hears that James is at Salisbury and he starts moving on the 21st of November towards James. And although this major battle on Salisbury Plain didn't take place, The advance guard of both armies met at Wincanton in South Somerset and there was an altercation. And what happened was, was that an officer, uh, Mr. Officer Campbell, if you like, who was part of Mackay's regiment, who was uh, in with William of Orange's forces, decided to raid some horses from the Irish advance guard of King James II. And as Campbell was trying to steal these horses, the Irish guard was advancing towards him. And there ended up being a clash between the the two groups of soldiers. 
and it ended up in fatalities. I think three volleys of, of musket shots were fired uh, by the Irish towards Mackay's regiment. Mm. And people, people died. And that's the second round of fatalities in, in the revolution in England. So people usually play it down as a skirmish. If you read any of the books on the 1688 revolution, they will mention Wincanton, they will mention Reading, which I'm about to it, it, it talk about in a minute. But yeah. it's usually just a one line that there were two skirmishes and that was it. But what that hides is that people did actually die. And so Wincanton is an example that the revolution was not bloodless. The next sort of altercation between the two armies was on the 6th of December 1688 in Reading. And what happened in Reading was that you had about 200 of William of Orange's soldiers versus 600 Irish. And the 200 soldiers of William of Orange pushed the 600 Irish through the town of Reading. And as the Irish were being pushed back into the marketplace, they were getting fired on by the troops by William of Orange. But William of Orange's troops got help from the people of Reading themselves, who pelted the Irish with objects from their windows. And there were people who, who did die. About 50 Irish soldiers died, and about five soldiers belonging to William of Orange died in this altercation. So what I'm saying is, is that people did die as a result of the revolution in England. The revolution in England was by no means glorious in the sense it wasn't, you know, in, in if you take glorious to mean bloodless, but the revolution even in England wasn't bloodless at all. People did die. And that's something that I'm, I'm very anxious to get across. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So... William wins, James II flees December 1688, and William III, Queen Mary, are declared monarchs. So, job done? All nice and complete? No. <laughs> I thought no. not. <laughs> no. Just because William has managed to, to grab hold of England, it doesn't mean that Ireland or even Scotland is on his side. Oh, it never does, does it? And, you know, we're back to the old Three Kingdoms thing of, you know, different nations all pulling yep. in different directions, wanting different things. Um, and, and so the potential for bloodshed is even more so in Ireland. I mean, unlike in England, full-scale battles and sieges do actually happen in Ireland, okay? 
And there is a lot of bloodshed that is that is that is that happens in Ireland um, between 1689 and 1691. Mm-hmm. So, to recap, as I've said, in Ireland, like in other parts of Britain, Catholics were returned to office, and as I've said before, the Protestants felt very insecure about this, and they looked towards William and William's landing as William as being their saviour. King James II landed in Ireland in March 1689. This is obviously after he fled London. Um, he comes back with an army, courtesy of Louis XIV. And interesting, Louis XIV doesn't give James his best men. He, James actually pleads Louis XIV to give him the Irish regiments that Louis XIV has as part of his royal guard. This is probably something I'm going to write in my historical fiction novel later on. Louis XIV says on your bike, they're some of my best men. I'm going to give you Protestant Danish Lutherans instead. Now, a lot of people don't know this because they just assume, oh, it's full of lots of Catholic Frenchmen and Irish Catholics. But actually a huge amount of James II's army was filled with Protestant Lutheran Danish soldiers because Louis XIV didn't want them anyway. So he was like, yeah, Yeah. go and take them, you know. So William... Yeah, so James lands with these with the with these men from Louis the Fourteenth, and the officer volunteers looking across, going, "William, we need help," because James has just come across with an army. So the officer volunteers then approach William of Orange and say, "Have you got any more men?" And in, in contrast to Louis the Fourteenth, William of Orange actually gives the officer volunteers some pretty decent men. Gives them about 15,000 professional soldiers. And and these outnumber the men that James has has brought over himself. And as most people know, in July 1690, James II's army was famously defeated at the Battle of the Boyne and it fatally wounded Catholic hopes in Ireland. James's defeat at the Boyne solidifies the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland for the next three centuries. And that's because... After William wins, he cleans up the land confiscations in Ireland. He takes the last remaining 20%, 10% of land left in Catholic hands and gives it to Protestants. So the Protestants have now got all the land and they get all the top positions. Okay, And this is why it assures the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland and why, to some degree, William is, is celebrated in, in, in Ireland today. However, this does not this 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 long-term impact of William's victory obscures the fact that between sort of 1689 and 1691, Ireland was in a very bitter and bloody civil war between Jacobites and Williamites. And I'm just going to go through two examples quickly, mm-hmm. which is the siege of Derry, London Derry, and I am going to use both names for the place. Um, as they say, Derry Girls, name you use depends on your perspective, but I will yeah. use both names, just out of fairness. And the Battle of Ogram, which is the last major battle of the, the, the Jacobite Bullimite War in Ireland, which was, was quite brutal as well. So King James II is very anxious about these Ulster volunteers. He wants to bring Protestant dissenters over. He feels like he's been misunderstood about what he's trying to do. 
and he's very anxious about the fact that you've got all these officer volunteers all now armed against him. So then he decides that he really needs to go to where uh, this movement is taking place, and it's around sort of Derry, London Derry area. And within the walls of Derry, London Derry, there are 30,000 Protestant refugees. They're all packed in there because they're expecting another 1641 rebellion. They've all packed themselves in there. And the reason for their choice of place, not only is Derry, Derry London Derry, is surrounded by walls, it was the only place that Sir Philip O'Neill, who was the instigator of the 1641 rebellion, could not penetrate. So that's why a lot of Protestant refugees went to Derry London Derry, okay, for, for shelter during this time. And the first casualties of the siege of London Derry happen over a skirmish over a bridge. And it happens at a place called, called Claddy, and it's on the River Finn. And they're fighting over this, this bridge because obviously in military times you have to secure your bridges. And what happens is two or three people get killed. Um, the Jacobites win the bridge and the Protestant soldiers run away into Derry, um, basically saying, you know, we're, we're in a lot of trouble here. And then what happens is James, King James II, hears about this and he goes, oh, hey, hang on a minute. We're getting the upper hand. Well, maybe if I approach the gates of Derry and I reason with these Protestant dissenters and tell them I'm really on their side, I'm not mean as bad as they think I am, they're going to open the gates to me. So he travels all the way from Armagh to Derry, expecting the defenders to open the gates to him. And they don't at all. In fact, the, the, the soldiers fire upon James's soldiers and they end up killing some of them. And James himself gets a bit of a fright. But James is not hard-hearted. Even at that point, he wants to reason with them and he offers them an amnesty. He says, look, you know, we can come to some agreement. And, and, and for a short period, he lets out about a thousand people outside of Derry to show that he is actually not a bad person. He's saying, look, I am a very kind king who does care about your welfare. You know, please, please understand that I genuinely do care about mm. you. But because the Jacobite army is so close to Derry, the, 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 the Protestants inside just don't trust him. They think he's up to no good. So then James is like, well, I've got no choice. So he lays siege to Derry, London Derry. And so you've got a situation where you've got 30,000 refugees all crammed into this small city behind these walls. Food's in short supply anyway, because the gates have been shut on, on earlier Catholic forces that tried to, 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 to come to some agreement. And the, 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 what happens is as time goes on, it, the conditions inside get worse. So you have 30,000 yep. people all crammed in this in this walled city where food is becoming scarce and they start eating cats and dogs. People are dying of exposure for sleeping outside because, because the Jacobites and the Willemites have been firing cannon shot at each other. They've taken off roofs off houses. They've destroyed buildings within Derry, London Derry. And so people have been forced to sleep out in the cold, so people die of exposure. The dysentery is rife. 
Women and children are dying of dysentery on a large scale. And it is a major humanitarian crisis. It's, you know, we would see it in that light today because between 8,000 and 10,000 people, and that's a, almost a third of the number of people within the walls, died or starved to death within the walls of Derry until William's soldiers came to relieve the siege on the 30th of July, 1689. So wow. you can't say that the 1688 revolution was bloodless. I'm going to skip over the Battle of the Boyne. And the reason for that is I know it's a major battle in the whole war in Ireland, but the casualties were quite minimal compared to other conflicts in this civil war. So I'm moving straight towards the Battle of Ogham, which takes place in 1691, okay? And this is the last big showdown between the forces of William of Orange and the Jacobites. Now, by this time, William, William of Orange and King James have had their big bun fight at the Battle of the Boyne. James has fled. But for the next year, these, these armies all still are coming in contact with each other and they're still fighting. But Ogram is the last big showdown and it actually destroys the Jacobite forces to the point where they can't recover. And this happens in July 1691. So what happens is the Jacobite commander, St. Ruth, he decides that he wants a showdown with the Williamites. And he picks the site of a field outside the settlement of Ogram in County Galway. Now, the other commanders are arguing with him and saying, no, this is a bad idea. We're better to play it defensively because we still have some of the towns in our possession. We don't really want a big field battle, but St Ruth was convinced that he could push the Williamites all the way back to Dublin. He was really convinced of the strength of the, the Jacobite forces at this time. So each army between them had 20,000 men. Okay, so they were, they were, they were eek-see-peek-see see in terms of numbers. Jacobite morale was a bit shaky, so St. Ruth decides, well, I'm going to organise Catholic Mass and to lift their spirits. And to give you some sense of the sort of scale of the carnage before we get right into it, a Catholic bishop reported back after the battle that at least 80 priests were slaughtered during the battle, um, just as they were trying to encourage the men to fight. And these priests were obviously the same priests that had given these men mass because the battle took place on a Sunday. It took place on Sunday, the 12th of July, 1691. That was another reason for mass, that it was a Sunday. And St. Ruth thought, I'll, I'll boost their, their morale. I'll give mm. them Catholic mass. And as I say, it was huge it, to give you a taste of the carnage before I go into it, at least 80 priests lost their life during the battle, just trying to encourage the Jacobite forces to fight. The Williamite forces saw St. Ruth's drop his lines and they decided to attack at 5pm on the Sunday. The battle was a mass of confusion. Even a leading historian on the subject, G.G. Sims, says that all the accounts of the battle are widely different. 
But what he did say was that for the first two hours of the battle, there were just skirmishes. Nobody really was fully committed to going in and doing anything much. And then, and it's at that point where they're just skirmishing that St. Ruth gets a bit cocky, the Jacobite officer, Jacobite commander, and he's like, well, you know, this isn't going to turn out much. I can push the Willemites all the way back to Dublin. We're going to be home and dry, dry boys. And, but the battle very quickly turned against the Jacobite. Um, and I think this is fascinating. So Ginkle, the Willemite commander at Ogram, decided to send in reinforcements. And as St. Ruth saw these reinforcements appear, he decided to reorganise his cavalry. As St. Ruth was reorganising his cavalry, a cannon shot came in and literally ripped St. Ruth's head from his shoulders. And the Jacobite cavalry, as a result, lost, well, the, the, the Jacobite army had lost their major commander. Mm. The, the Jacobite cavalry just went into utter confusion. Command just dissolved. And there was this pass that the, the Jacobites controlled on the battlefield. And as a result of this confusion, the Jacobites lost control of this pass. And before they knew it, the Williamites were all over them. And as a result, they, they were getting absolutely decimated. The infantry clap and the, the, the garrison, the Jacobite garrison that held Ogram Castle was absolutely butchered by the Williamites. So they were absolutely destroyed. In fact, it is the worst death toll in Irish military history. Over 7,000 Jacobites lost their lives. And as I say, this is the worst, worst death toll in Irish military history. 7,000 people and the entire Jacobite army was decimated. There is no way that you can call the 1688 revolution as being bloodless. This was just carnage. This was just mayhem. So we've looked at England and Ireland, but how did the revolution play out in Scotland? So what we have to understand about Scotland is that contrary to England, James VII, as he's known in Scotland, was very, very popular. He'd done a good job governing Scotland for his brother when he was Duke of York between 1680 and 1682. And he'd instituted a policy whereby Catholics and Presbyterians were given office. And he did a very good job because Lord Stair was promoted into office by James Duke of York, as he was then, or later King James VII. Okay? So James had enacted this policy of toleration and it, it, actually, it actually bore fruit in Scotland, whereby Presbyterians and Catholics held office. So it, it, he, he, you know, it did actually did actually come to fruition. Also, one thing you have to understand about the revolution in Scotland is that Scotland had no say in the letter from the Immortal Seven in England. The Immortal Seven were Englishmen, and they'd sent that letter thinking only about England. They weren't mm. really thinking about the other two kingdoms, which will not surprise people who are familiar with Whigs and Puritans. They're, they're very, very Anglo-centric. So that's what you have to understand. When the, the, the Whigs send this letter to William of Orange, they are thinking only about England. So Scotland doesn't really react to events until James flees. 
And what happens is Scotland calls a convention. And in this convention is split equally between people who like James and people who like Orange. It's not like England where England goes over to Orange almost wholesale. There is actually a split. But what is very interesting is there's a clique called the club. And they consist of Whigs and um, they have links to the Earl of Argyll. Mm -hmm. who obviously has been in exile in the Netherlands and who's been living with William of Orange. And they rise up in the convention and they start to control proceedings. And they demand a Presbyterian church and they demand a, a re-established parliament. They take control of the situation. And they, they declare, to the club's instigation, they declare that James has forfeited his right to the crown in Scotland because he has fled. You know, James didn't yeah. sign a formal abdication. They've just said, well, he's, he's fled. So, you know, he's no longer king. And then they invite William of Orange and Mary to take the crown of Scotland, which they do on the, on the 11th of May, 1689. So it, it, the revolution in Scotland's got a slightly different flavour to it. But the interesting thing is, 10 weeks after William and Mary accept the crown in Scotland, Scotland erupts into civil war between Jacobites and Williamites. And again, like Ireland, this is full-scale battles. This is, this is a conflict where people, you know, a lot of people die. I'm not going to go through all the battles and all the conflicts, obviously, because we don't have time for it. But, you know, this civil war lasts until May, uh, the 1st of May, 1690, until the Jacobite forces are destroyed at the Battle of Crumdale. But what I will do is I will talk about the Battle of Killycranky and also mm -hmm. something very close to my heart, which is technically seen sort of outside the, 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 the sort of William Might Jacobite war in Scotland, but it is nevertheless connected, which is a massacre of Glencoe. Okay. So Battle of Killycranky. So this is quite interesting. So Battle of Killycranky was a victory for the Jacobites, and it's quite an interesting victory because John Graham of Claverhouse, Viscount Dundee, only has 1,700 men at his disposal. And he sees off a much larger Williamite force. And, I mean, I can imagine people saying, going, how or why, how did that happen? And the root of this is the famous Highland Charge. And what happened was, was that the Williamite commander at the time had spread his lines too thin. To, to a certain degree as well, the Williamites were kind of caught off guard. The, the, you know, Dundee appeared and then, you know, the, the Williamites appeared and then they sort of decided hastily, let's have a battle. And what happened was that the, the, the Jacobites organised themselves into their Highland charge. And this is absolutely terrifying for the Williamite soldiers. The, Jacob, the, the Highland Charge was something that was feared by their enemies. It was ruthless on one ground, but it always seemed to work. I mean, one occasion where it didn't work and it was broken was Glodden. Um, we won't go into it, but, you know, that is a very famous you know, episode where it didn't work. But I believe they had to, if I was, if I remembering Culloden right, and I'm, I know how nervous I am talking to a Scot about Culloden here, 
But as as I understand it, they had to actually go into specific training to find a weakness in the Highland yeah. Charge and yeah. exploit it. But the first yeah. time you, you face that, you, you're not yeah. going to know. Yeah, so Cumberland had researched, you know, how you know, he had to, to research this and, and he came up with a plan of lines sort of quite, you know, a certain number deep so that the, the, when the Highland Charge came through, it didn't break the lines. Fortunately, the Willamite commander in charge of this operation didn't do that. He spread his lines too thinly. And he warned his troops, if you dare break, he says, the, the surrounding clans in the surrounding area in, in, in uh, Perthshire and, and the Earl of Athol's men are going to slit your throats. So do not run and do not flee. But as soon as the Highlanders and the, the, the Jacobites screamed at the Willamite soldiers, some of the Willamite soldiers were so terrified, they just broke and ran. And it was chaos. It was a bloodbath. And as part of the Highland charge, as soon as the Jacobites were on these men, they butchered them. They slaughtered them where they stood. And it was a bloodbath. And there's this very famous story of all these soldiers fleeing the battlefield, these Willamite soldiers fleeing the battlefield. And you've probably heard of this really superhuman feat by one Willamite soldier of jumping across the river from high cliffs. Even when we look at it today, we wonder how the hell did he manage to clear, you know, jumping from, you know, this cliff right away across to the other side. But when your life's at risk, it's incredible what you'll do, you know, how far you can jump. It's quite a famous episode. So, as I say, it was a very brutal, brutal, very, very brutal battlefield. And, and as I say, that in itself shows that the 1688 revolution was not bloodless. It was very, very much a civil war. It was very much a, a, a conflict where people lost their lives. And, you know, yeah. aggressively so as well. Okay, and then you're, you're going to go for the one that I believe has got a personal connection there, and that is the, that is then the massacre of Glencoe, which, as Kyle pointed out before we recorded, was ordered by Scots, performed by Scots on other Scots. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's something I emphasise because... A lot of people tend to get the wrong end of the stick. And, you know, I've seen on Twitter people, you know, British Army this, British Army that. No, it wasn't. It was the Scottish Army. It was paid by the Scottish government. It was the Scottish Army. It was Scottish people doing it to Scottish people. And Kyle's absolutely right. And it's something I have to pull people up on all the time. But it is a very, very tragic story. But I think it also shows how the vindictive William of Orange could really, really be. And this is where I get really angry in that sense. So the Jacobite army is eventually is destroyed at Cromdale on the 1st of May 1690. However, William of Orange was not just satisfied with defeating the Jacobites militarily, he wanted people to swear loyalty to him and his wife as well. Okay, particularly the clans. And he devised an an oath that they all had to take by the 31st of December, 1691. 
Now, unfortunately, when this oath was administered, it was at the height of winter in the Scottish Highlands. And at this time, the winter was particularly bad. And many of the clan chiefs that were asked to, to comply just did it in the nick of time. But the story of McKenna Glencoe is a very, very sad one because he was full of really good intentions. He'd got the missive to, 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 to pledge loyalty to William and Mary. He decided that he would leave his clan and go to Fort William to take the oath, um, only to be told by Colonel Hill, the governor of Fort William, that he'd come to the wrong place. Now, he'd arrived, he arrived at Fort William on the deadline on the 31st of December, 1691. And so, unsurprisingly, McKean was on a bit of state. He's thinking, I've come to the wrong place. I'm going to be late taking the oath. So he asks Hill for a letter to say he's obviously well-intentioned, that he intended to take the oath, and he's hoping that this letter from Hill gives him a reprieve. Where McKean was supposed to go is he was supposed to go to Inverary, which is in Argyll, which is quite a ways. The but, other side of Scotland. Yeah, yeah, the other side of Scotland. So he's got to travel down the Great Glen and he's got to travel down the west coast of Scotland. He eventually gets there on the 3rd of January, 1692. But unfortunately, Arkinglass, who is the administrator of the oath, has left. And McCain's all in a bit of a state. He's like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So he finds Arkinglass eventually, explains the situation, takes out his letter, and Arkinglass says, OK, fine, I'll take your, take your oath, sign this, I'll give you a certificate, We'll send this off to Edinburgh and we'll say no more about it. Now, Arkinglass was a Campbell, okay? This is this is another thing you've got to keep in mind, the back of your mind. I'm not going to accuse him of anything because I don't think there's any evidence for um, skullduggery, but Arkinglass is a Campbell, okay? So Campbell says, so Arkinglass says to him, right, I'll fill in this certificate to see you've taken the oath. I'll send the certificate off to uh, Edinburgh, and and that's it. You're you're fine. So, McKean breathes a sigh of relief. He thinks, right, that's it. Everything's fine, and he he toddles off back to Glencoe. Unfortunately, a few weeks later, um, it's declared by the administration in Edinburgh that the certificate is seen as invalid, and that the oath was taken late. Now, to understand. Why this is the case, this is where I think the skullduggery starts, because Dorimple of Stair had been told by, by William that William wanted to make an example of the clans. And Stair was just waiting for, for one clan to drop the ball so that he could use them as an example to, to enforce loyalty to William and the Highlands, okay? Mm -hmm. So he actually says to William in a letter that we should separate out McKean from the rest of the clans. And it's clear that he is targeting McKean as uh, his uh, sort of example in that sense. So at this time what's going on is that a regiment from Argyll ha is going through Glencoe. 
and they're led by Campbell of Glenline. And what is normal for for regiments back then is okay, they're Campbells, the Glencool, the Keynes are McDonald's, but it's Highland hospitality. If there are soldiers passing through the Highlands and they need food and they need shelter and they need to be fed, it's Highland hospitality that you give people food. Okay, regardless of clan rivalries or anything, mm-hmm. you you look after people because the Highlands are a harsh climate. People wouldn't survive otherwise. So it's part of Highland culture to do this. So Campbell of Glenlion and his men are in Glencoe for a number of weeks up at this point. They've they've lived with these people. They've they've shared their food. They've been given warmth. They've entertainment, they've been well looked after as per Highland hospitality. Then Campbell of Lyon, then Campbell of Glen Lyon gets this letter in the middle, well, in in round about the twelfth, the thirteenth of February sixteen ninety-two. And this letter reads that none of the women and children, the young and the old, are to be spared. And what Campbell of Glenline has been ordered to do is to attack the McDonald's of Glencoe at 5 a.m. in the morning while they're sleeping in their beds and kill them. Because Stair wants to make an example of, of these people. Now, bear in mind, I have to remind you, McKeon did take the oath to William of Orange. Yeah. He, he was slightly late. But he did do it, and it was well-intentioned. And also I have to emphasise is that McCain did not take place in the Jacobite intrigues that happened the previous, or the, the previous autumn. He wasn't a suspect. He wasn't seen as a bad guy, generally. He wasn't one of the really naughty Jacobites. He was actually one of the good guys, OK? So he, when he took that oath to William, he was actually quite sincere. Okay, and what happens is, is that Glen Lyon looks at the order and I can't imagine what is going through his head because as a professional soldier, he knows that he is being ordered to kill non-combatants, innocent non-combatants. But if he does not follow that order, he will be shot for insubordination. So he's in a really, really difficult position. and. He's sort of, he, he organises himself and he organises his men and McKeon sort of is woken up with a noise and he comes out and he says, what's going on? And Campbell of Glenline says to him, oh, it's, it's okay. We've got some trouble, you know, over in, in that part. I think we're going to leave and we're going to go and see what's going on. McKeon had no inkling of what was going on. And as McKeon was getting dressed... One of Glen Lyon's soldiers shot McKeon in the back, and that was the start of the Glencoe massacre. And what happened is that women and children were butchered um, in their beds. Soldiers even used the butts of their, their rifles to smash the skulls of some of the McDonald's. Women were stripped naked and left in the snowy hills, and a lot of them died of exposure. There is absolutely no way 
that you could justify that as being within the rules of combat, not even by, you know, 17th century standards. Yeah. Um, this is this is way off the scale in, in terms of that. And I get quite emotive about it. And the reason why I get quite emotive about it is that I am descended from McDonald's who, who are from the Cairngorms, which is east of Glencoe. But the, the oral history that's been passed down through our family is that we are descendants of one of the survivors of the massacre of Glencoe because a lot of the survivors fled over the hills and fled in different directions. And some of them probably fled uh, to safety across the Cairngorms. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate. When people tell me that 1688 revolution was bloodless, I get very, very angry because when you look at the, the Glencoe massacre, there is no way that you can even say that the 1688 revolution was bloodless. Well, Thank you very much, Kirsty. That is that that was that was epic, and it again comes from an area that, being English, yeah, you kind of buy into that whole glorious revolution invite, and you you never really consider the brutal civil war that happened elsewhere. I can be just as guilty of that. So so thank you very much because that's shone an absolutely brilliant light on on a conflict that we really should talk more about so so it's been an honor and privilege but thank you very much thank you very much for having me you you are absolutely welcome well ladies and gentlemen i hope you've enjoyed this episode if you would like to know more about kirstein's work then you can start by buying the first of her seven books la garde Écossais, and we will have links to that in the in the show notes and of course listening to the accompanying podcast as well that will go through the history we will have a link to that in the show notes as well and of course you can follow her on twitter at kirstein mm but yeah once again thank you very much for coming back and I'm sure that you've got enough rage to come back a third time at some point. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We would really appreciate any reviews you could leave for us with Apple, Podchaser or Amazon. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I am at Kyle G History. And if you're enjoying this, then please join the Angry Mob on Patreon because this really helps support our podcast. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.